Welcome to the broadcast. Every Arizona homeowner's best friend. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. I talk to the tree. Stop and hear what I say. Come on around back, Arizona, Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, the Outdoor Living Hour at Rosie on the House, your Saturday morning tradition since 1988. If you're following along in our, our annual homeowner handbook, also has our calendar and topic of broadcast topics. You know, this Saturday we're talking trees, and we always start with a tree of the month. We have Justin Ronner in from Agriscaping, returning guest that is uh, going to... You always bring something new and interesting, and the first thing you started talking about was edibles. Last time you we were talking about something edible that uh, helped diarrhea. Uh, is, is there anything fascinating like that that we can prepare ourselves for today? <laughs> well, there's always something like that, especially with the tree of the month. The tree of the month is the desert ironwood, also called the Olnea tosota, and it's one of our foundational trees. It's a keystone species, as they call it, for the Sonoran Desert. It's one of the ways that people know they're in the Sonoran Desert is if you can find one of these ironwood trees. I mean, it's known worldwide for a lot of different qualities, and some of the edible things that you got on it is one of them. And I have said more than once, of all the native desert trees, the ironwood is my favorite. So tell me why. It is different. I don't know. It's, it's very slow growing, um, a pain in the neck to trim. It, it's it's some of the it, it's probably the most wicked thorniest of all the. I mean, even some of those mesquite trees. At least you can see the thorns on them. You know, sometimes the ironwoods it they they camouflage their thorns, but there's just something about the a mature ironwood tree that's very distinct and different from the Palo Verde. Uh, from your mesquites, and I, I technically mesquites aren't even like native; they've all come in from Texas, so I've been told. And it's not uh, a tree that distinguishes the Sonoran Desert, but it's just, and, and it's they're rare. That might be the 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 neat thing. Like you said, when you find it one, you know you're in it. I mean, you could walk from Phoenix to Blythe along I-17 and not see an ironwood tree. You see yep. a lot of other things, but not see an ironwood tree. You know, and when you find one. There's a lot of other things. There are quail are under there. Rabbits are under there. Javelinas under there. You dig a little deep, you might get a little water seep under there. You know, they, I don't know, maybe it's just like a beacon of life. Well, and there you go. And that's one of the main things in how we know that it's a keystone tree because what it's doing is it's allowing that microclimate sub, subsurface of it to grow other things. You know, it's an evergreen, but it also is it has a curious trait that when it gets a little bit too cold, it actually drops some of its leaves but and allows more heat to kind of enter in but that it doesn't let the heat dissipate out and so it actually protects a lot of our native species i mean when you go out in the desert right now and this is a great time to go out in the desert and find an ironwood tree because most of them are blooming and it's got a beautiful little pea kind of flower and it'll cover almost the entire tree but they're kind of a pinkish hue kind of a light pink to purple hue and that's kind of one of the ways that you can tell them apart from some of the other trees like we got the Palo Verdes out there. They're blooming yellow or just starting to fade out from their yellow. The mesquites also have a yellow to pale bloom. But these guys, the desert ironwood, very similar look and shape to some of the other varieties that we find in the Sonoran Desert. But it's got that purple hue to it. And that's one of the distinctive traits. And a, and a silvery bark on the, the, the younger trees. And like you were saying, Romy, it's got a thorn 
that's a little obnoxious because it's hidden and it's it's a thorn across the entire tree the the you normally on on trees the the thorn will be on the edge of the branches on the smaller twigs and stuff and as they mature those thorns often fall off but in with the ironwood it's got that little thorn a little almost a hook typed thorn that's just right up close to the bark right next to the the crux between that and another branch and it and it keeps it so it's always protecting itself from predation and it's quite an interesting tree and we've mentioned this a few times in the past along carefree highway state route 74 between i-17 and where it dead ends onto US 60 in Morristown. What's known as the champion ironwood tree, the largest known ironwood tree in the state of Arizona, is visible on the south side of I of Carefree Highway between that stretch. And that's all I'll say because People do stupid stuff. They go out there, oh, this is the oldest tree. Let me call my name in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't do that. I mean, these trees, that that thing's hundreds of years old. And that is not only the largest one in the state, it's actually the largest one in the world. So that's, that's a special tree. And uh, for those of us that know and love to hunt those champion trees out, you know, a couple of buddies of mine, we, we, we've we hunted some of those champion trees out. And that's, that is one of them. For the ironwood, it is literally the largest in the world. And they last a long time. Some of the densest wood on the planet is that ironwood tree, hence the, the common name. I mean, it's so dense that uh, a piece of wood from an ironwood tree actually sinks, doesn't float. So nothing to build a uh, nothing to build your your boats out of, you know. It's a, you're not floating out of a, a monsoon storm, you know, on an ironwood tree. It's not going to help you out. But that density, also for the Native Americans, made it really important for actually firing some of the old clay pottery things like that when they would heat stuff up because it has the highest heat potential of any of the the wood out here in the desert. That ironwood, when you start cooking that that wood, it gets in, incredibly hot. But the greater value is obviously the value of that tree when it's alive. But the cool part is if you found a tree, an ironwood tree that's dead, it could have been dead out in the, out in the, out in the fields for literally over 1,000 years. They'll last about 1,600 years dead because they don't rot. Uh, it's one of the only trees in the world that termites do not eat or help decay because they've actually got such a high density of these minerals that are toxic to them that they can't eat that wood. And so it is a very long-lasting, non-decaying wood that, that grows naturally here in the state of Arizona and through the Sonoran Desert. And that's about it. I don't think it grows really anywhere else in the world. That's very cool. I had no idea termites wouldn't eat that. Nope. Termites won't even eat it. So if you find a dead one, and you might find them out in the desert, these big old dead carcasses, and they, they might have been a few hundred years old, and we don't know. That, that tree could still be sitting there. It'd be sitting there for a 1,000 years, like literally 1,600 years. And it's really hard to, car- to date these based on tree rings. Because of how slow they grow, it's hard to cut them and then count the rings because they're just so fine. And so that's another interesting component about the the desert iron or desert ironwood, just how amazingly dense you could use it for wood handles. The Native Americans use the some of the old wood for for weapons and tools, and I mean it's quite a diverse, uh, very very useful tree. And if somebody was out driving around right now. You had mentioned earlier one distinctive factor that could help you identify it. It's got it, that pinkish purple kind of flower to it, so it's going to have a little pink purple kind of hue. Uh, its leaves will still be relatively green, so it'll look similar to some of the Palo Verdes that you see out here, Have a but a rounder shape, not as pokey on the edge, I guess say, not as pointed. It's going to be a bit more round, you know, indicative of the fact it's growing slow. And it's going to have a lot of other things likely growing under it or through it. 
because of how long it's been there. I mean, even our, our wonderful, uh, wonderful cactuses, the, the great saguaro cactuses, many, many, many of them started off their life you know, at the base of of an ironwood tree. Some of the largest specimens that we have in the state actually are either nearby or, or in the shadow of one of these wonderful specimens. And that pink hue, that bloom, that's only going to last about another week, two weeks? Yeah, it's I a mean, very, it's... very delicate bloom. So it's not a, and it's a P-type flower, which is another cool thing about the tree is that it's it's a legume. It's in the legume family. So it actually, it, it's got bacteria that are naturally occurring in its root system that help fix the, the uh, the uh, the the nitrogen that's in the air into a form that then can be uptaken by other plants, and that's another reason why they're really good uh, as a nurse tree to cultivating other varieties of desert trees and plants, which then makes it a nice place to harbor all types of wildlife, as well as the deep rooting system that they have. You really don't have to water these. The only real problem is if you overwater them. Yeah, I mean, in all reality, because they and can they can drive their roots pretty deep. They're very good at adapting to drought conditions. They call it a, a drought deciduous tree, which means that if it gets too dry, it literally drops its leaves, and conserving the water so it doesn't even evaporate through the the leaf. But then that slows its growth, which it's totally fine doing because how dense it is, you know. And that's a great point because if you have planted mesquite trees, you're looking for something little water use, but you want a shade canopy, you can pour water on mesquites i mean they'll they'll grow and and you know you can have a nice good desert shade canopy in very short period of time you can't take that same technique and plant do it to an ironwood like you said you you could overwater and kill it very easily i've never seen a mesquite die from overwatering right it's like you can put a mesquite it might blow over yeah it might blow (laughs) over because it's its roots are so shallow but yeah desert ironwood just won't even survive in a grass scenario it's not going to be able to adapt to that much water moving into its system quick enough, and it can in, indeed just root, it rots the root of it. Uh, and so you want to put that more of in a desert environment. It's great for, for a, a, if you want an indicative uh, Sonoran desert experience in your yard, you're going to want to add an ironwood as one of your trees for sure. The Desert Ironwood, our tree of the month here at Rosie on the House. We'll also be talking about landscape watering and whatever you want to talk about on your landscape garden. We've got Justin Runner in of Agriscaping and also the Queen Creek Botanical Gardens. And uh, I, I, the amount of hats you wear, I, I should have printed a list <laughs> because I, I can't dedicate that many different hats to memory. But you can join the conversation at one 767 4348 That's 1-888-ROSIE for you. Or you can text questions into 411-923. I have not heard this song in years. Do you know who it is? You're yeah. bobbing your head, so I thought it, maybe. It sounds like a, a Bob Marley type song. Is, am, am I, Loggins and Messina. Okay. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Sitting in. Great album. It's good. Now... When we were talking about all the hats you wear, your events and the amount of online education that y'all do, I missed one last Tuesday that was very, it looked very intriguing. And I even printed it out to ask you about it, and it's sitting on my desk at, you know, the office on the South Building. Um, so I can't remember what that was, but there's another one coming up uh, on uh, Tuesday. You probably don't even have, 
you probably do it's so not much. Monday yet, so I don't know what it <laughs> right, is. Right, exactly. And and, and if we do have classes on a regular, and I think that's part of our homestead series. And so we are doing a lot of homesteading stuff, teamed up with one of our certified agriscapers down in Sierra Vista. Who actually, you know, when you're out in Sierra Vista, it's it's a place where you've got to learn how to be self-sufficient as best you can. And, and really how to protect your property, because obviously there's a lot of border issues going around the Sierra, Sierra Vista area, too. But with all that that's going on down there, they, there's a lot of desire to become more self-reliant on the space that you have. Uh, we got a lot of people in Florence doing similar things. And so we found it reasonable to start sharing more of the homesteading practices that we like to, to, to operate. And so with classes, and if you're interested in our classes, agriscaping.com just click on our calendar of events that we've got on there for education. And, and as you were speaking of all those hats I wear, that's just a indicative of the fact that we, we need to hire more people. So I'm not wearing all these hats and that's accurate right now. We are hiring. So if you're interested in a job in the world of agriscaping, growing food in, in landscapes, you know, check it out. Agriscaping.com. You can just look at careers or forward slash careers at agriscaping.com and look at a lot of the opportunities we've got available. And very, you mentioned very briefly what agriscaping means there. Elaborate on that for a minute, because it's I, until I ran into your company, I'd never heard of it. So, I, I, did you coin this phrase? I did. I guess you can blame me for it. Right? <laughs> it's it's uh, th- what we do is we're bringing together the best of your productive agriculture with the best of ornamental landscaping, and it's all founded really around a core of microclimate technology that I developed starting back in 2001. We started just really studying a lot about how to grow how to optimally grow in suboptimal conditions, which is what most of us have in our landscapes. We don't have the traditional farming experience, right? We don't have traditional farmland. We don't have all. So we have to find ways to cultivate optimal conditions. But what we find is that we don't have optimal sun conditions in most yards, especially as our landscapes shrink with the smaller spaces and stuff that we've got. So we started studying all these suboptimal conditions and realizing there's a huge, much bigger range of things we can grow and how we can expand our growing seasons just by understanding the differences in those microclimates, understanding what to plant and when on in or in these different microclimates that exist in every yard. And so that's that's kind of the basis. But then also when you have that amount of diversity and variety of things you can grow, you can now start designing it in beautiful ways. And then when you design it also makes it more strategic in terms of your maintenance, making that a lot easier. Because what we found is just uh, from a psychological standpoint, if we show a picture of a of a of a beautiful farm with all these rows of food growing and stuff, and we often get a very positive response from people. Oh, that's beautiful farm! Look at all the food and stuff. And then we say, well, imagine if you owned it. Now, ninety five percent of the people imagine if they own it. Oh, that's too much work. Oh, I don't want to be touching that. Oh, they they back away from it. But when we show them a an agriscape which has the integration of both food and elegance we find that the acceptance rate of wanting to own that is so much more it's so much higher it's like 80 to 95% of wanting a, a property like that as opposed to being deterred from it because of the fear of work because when it's beautiful it's easy to be in it and want to keep it beautiful it's it's a, it's an interesting trait we have a lot of volunteers in agriscapes whereas if even at the botanical garden just for the botanical garden components less people want to volunteer for just straight botanical less people want to volunteer for straight farm work but the agriscaping work, so much more volunteerism, which is an indicator that there's a lot. It's a lot easier to manage. And when we're integrating all those things together, it's not necessarily, you know, it, it's it's if you grow it, it's got to be edible. Or if uh, 
you know, it's got to be completely zero scape, no water use. You know, it's it's a combination of all those things together. Yeah. And like you said, the microclimates are a big part of it. And one thing I always talk about when someone's like, you know, why are you, you know, flowers or, you know, why it's not edible? Well, just because it's not edible to you doesn't mean it's not edible to the pollinators. Right. And the pollinators help increase your production for things that are edible for humans. So it it may not be firsthand edible or you may not want to eat a flower. I mean, I'm sure if you if you're hungry enough, you, you could probably choke one down. But it supports, you know, your your entire ecosystem, a microclimate that only helps better production on what you are trying to grow to eat. Exactly. Kind of the the there's utility in pretty much any plant. It's as long as you match it with complementary plants. And and companion planting is a major uh, thing that we do within agriscaping is we're trying to companion plant. So similar to understanding that there's such a thing as a nurse tree, you know, like the ironwood tree. And the ironwood tree, in all of its utility, also has an edible bean. I mean, it, it, the, the Native Americans would eat that thing, you know, and it's got nitrogen in it, so it can be ground down and used as a fertilizer. I mean, so there's a lot of value there. And, and it, the, the, uh, for those that don't know, it, if you ever want to have a, a nice little experience of foraging in the desert, check out a gal by the name, we, we call her Cactus Kelly. And so just look up that name. She's a good friend of mine, and she, she lives here in the – she's up off a of South Mountain, and she takes people on little experiences to go and experience what foraged food tastes like. Ironwood is one of her favorite ones, and my per, I love uh, – I would boil it down, boil the seed down so I get the, um, the tannins out, and then roast it, and it tastes a lot like a roasted peanut. A lot of the same uh, value, but if you're allergic to peanuts, you won't be allergic to this one. It's kind of cool. Cactus Kelly. Cactus I, I, Kelly. I just searched it, and it takes you to a Facebook page and kind of scrolling through some pictures. Some interesting – and, I mean, this one looks – does not look like something that came out of the desert. They got blueberries and I'm, – I'm, Well, there is a blueberry cactus. There's some prick- other things in there. So Cactus Kelly, Kelly it, Athena. It's a prickly pear petal. There you go. With blueberries on it. Interesting. Yep. Kind of the blueberry cactus, we often call it. And that's it's kind of fun. So there's a lot of that that's out there. Another cool thing with the agriscaping world has a lot to do with understanding how these desert trees grow. And they grow by really cultivating a, a soil experience that draws deeper water up to the surface and makes it more accessible to shallower rooting type plants. So that's another one of the cool things. And and water is a huge issue, obviously, in the desert. So Agriscaping focuses a lot on rainwater harvesting, how we're using uh, stuff from the, the houses as well as, you know, gray water from the house in order to water and irrigate our plants in the summer. And speaking of irrigation, after bottom of the hour news break, we're going to get into landscape watering and what we need to do to adjust for our seasonal adjustment because we're in that stage. It's We've had a triple digit once so far, and we might hit it again this weekend, but there's going to be a phase between now and July where we might have to adjust it three or four times as we adjust to our wonderful heat. <laughs> yeah, I joked about the heat as we went to the break, and it's it's kind of a, a love-hate relationship. You know, no one <clears throat> that I'm aware of really enjoys 110 degree days. But if we didn't have those, Arizona be 60 million people instead of eight. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> we, so. We, 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 we would be an ex, uh, the population would explode, I think. <laughs> well, there's, there's definitely some value in it, not just to deter people from coming to Arizona, but I think, you know, the dry heat that we do have makes, you know, a little dip in the pool. I mean, you can get chilly. 
because of how quick that water dries off your body, uh, because of how how arid our air is, you know, it, it is, you can make it quite enjoyable to live here in, in Arizona, even when it's, you know, 110 degrees. Now, 122, maybe not, maybe not, maybe not. <laughs> That's, and we don't hit those very often. No. Uh, over... Uh, you know, 117, 18 seems to be about the max on average. But every now and then, it, it does break the 120 mark. But I'd have to look it up to see. But that, that that seems to happen about as often as we get snow, you know, about about every decade or so. Yeah, there you like go. It. And then, you know, it's when the, it's 100 degrees at night. That's that's when you really start going, okay, no reprieve. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's usually no. that's when it's a little more humid, too. So it's like, ugh. Drags drags in the moisture to bring in our rain, so it's a necessary evil too. Because without that extreme heat and dryness, it wouldn't draw in the moisture off of, uh, you know, out, out of the out of the Baja Peninsula kind of <clears throat> down there and stuff. That's right. And 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 with all that we're talking about and how how uncomfortable it might be in the heat, just think about your plants. I mean, they are uh, without dwelling. And without protection, without the ease of jumping in a pool. I haven't seen anybody jump in a pool with their plants to try to give them a reprieve. And I wouldn't recommend it because they often have chlorine in them. So it is um, it is definitely something that we need to be very conscious and aware of cultivating a landscape that can survive the heat. And the number one quality is going to be how you manage that watering system that you've got at your house. How the irrigation functions for you and for your plants to make everything work well. And so that's uh, that's it's a great topic, obviously, because we're heading into it. Um, and, and one of the major questions we get all the time is, well, how long do I water? And um, and it's different for everybody. It's different for every plant. And so what's really important for everybody to understand when it comes to your irrigation and what you're needing to shift things to is that you're going to have to increase your frequency as well as your uh, length of duration. For pretty much everything, it's usually a fifty percent increase this time of year on on how much we're watering from even the springtime watering, and what we're trying to do is going to increase the frequency, especially for things that have shallower root systems. Now, for our deeper rooted things like the trees, we don't necessarily want to increase the frequency, meaning how often we're going to water. We actually want to increase the duration so we get a much larger depth to where the water goes to stretch those roots out to be able to survive. Uh, the dry season that we have coming. And when you're talking about expanding the, the duration of watering, so last night, and I this is my Friday night during the summertime, uh, I start the water on the pecan trees, and my irrigation timer times out at six hours. I wake up, start it again before I leave for the broadcast. <laughs> wow, yeah, there you go. And he, yeah, good 12 hours is probably good. Get that deep, deep root. And for all the bigger trees, if you want a tree to grow big and tall, you're going to have to grow. You're going to have to get those roots to grow deep and deep and wide. And and the only way to do that is long, long time overnight watering. Is a lot of times what we'll do. We'll let it even stick in a hose on a big tree overnight, but put it on a trickle. You know, you don't want the water to be pooling around a tree. You want it to be able to seep in. And for each of you, it's going to be a little different for how fast you can put water on your plant versus how fast your your soil will soak that water up. If you got really high clay, it's just going to pool up and then roll away and go to your neighbor's house and water their plants for them. You don't want to do that. Not that you don't love your neighbor, but that you want to first focus on your own trees and plants at your own house. So a slow trickle overnight will do much better than a, a pool of water at the base of your plant. Now, I'm going to 
seems like I'm, I'm jumping way from one topic to the next, but it ties into a texter's question. What's your favorite desert pine? My favorite desert pine, probably the Aleppo. And that would probably be my favorite desert pine. That's funny you say that because that's mine too. But everyone tries to steer you to an Afghan. You can't even hardly find an Aleppo. But there's just right. something about those old irrigated properties that have a, a row of Aleppo pine. And usually it's uh, <clears throat> on the other side of that, there's uh, – flooded irrigation and there's livestock on it mm -hmm. and it's like an old homestead there's just something about that i love and i've always wanted to put a row of aleppo pines on the south side of our property uh but <clears throat> all that being said you can hardly find an aleppo pine in fact I've, i haven't everyone has afghan now and yep. this texture wants to know how often should i water a 10 year old afghan pine tree and I, I think the key to that is what you said earlier it's not the frequency it's the duration yeah especially for those uh, those afghan pines those afghan pines have a nice taproot provided that it was planted uh young enough that it could grow its own taproot and not spider out and uh key to that is that it needs that deep deep water that's really what survives those those afghan pines because uh you know i grew up with some afghan pines in our yard uh, as a kid growing up as well as some aleppo and uh, over time when they got about 40 feet tall, then all of a sudden they started having some deep water issues. And we weren't sure what happened, but I think it, there was just some water table stuff that shifted in our area. And so everybody's pine trees started dying. And so we had to really increase the amount of depth that that water would go in order to ensure their survivability. And so a couple of trees still remain at my mom's old house, you know, in the front yard, but you know, the, all the, I think all the ones in the backyard we had to cut out. And so that's that's the key. It's it's about the depth and really overnight watering at least once a month. Doing that overnight watering, that's that's kind of our rule of thumb. And then maybe it's a, it's about every every two weeks that you're watering. And it really depends on the age of the tree. If I've got a tree that's only about about ten or twelve feet tall, then I want to water it about every ten to twelve days. You know, the shorter the tree, you can you start increasing the frequency of how we water that thing because usually its root system is so much smaller. But as that tree gets 30 feet tall, every 30 days is about the right duration for those big taproot-type type trees. So however tall your tree is relative to that type, especially the, the pines, it's a one-day one duration for day of uh, trunk height that you got is, is a good idea in terms of your frequency. And now you just got to make sure it gets to the right depth on each time that you water that thing. I like that. Every, every foot? About every trunk foot, uh, a day of duration between the next watering that you do, but you're going to have to go about the same depth of where you want that water to go. So just remember, for every every foot above the ground on those taproot-type trees, it's got about the same one-foot depth going down into the soil. And where it's drawn its greatest water is at the lowest depth. So my <clears throat> my soil prod is only three and a half feet deep. Right. How, how am I going to measure 30 feet deep <laughs> well 30 feet deep would be okay let's say if i got a, a slow watering that i'm doing and i've now figured out that with my slow watering it's going to get to the depth of three feet in four hours let's say it'll get there in four hours well if i want to go to 30 feet i'm just looking at that same thing i'm just going to multiply that time frame till i get to 30 and then that's how many hours i'm likely to do which an overnight watering about 12 hours is what you're doing that pretty much matches your nice big growing tree so if that's what you're aiming for, a big, tall tree that's sturdy in a windstorm, you're going to have to get that depth even deeper. And I know we always talk about three-foot depth minimum for any of our big trees or fruit trees. But, yeah, you get the big, nice specimen trees, it's even deeper than that. And something that always interests me about the Afghan pine is, well, it, 
the name is where the region it comes from, Afghanistan. Uh-huh. And when we're in the desert, we think, okay, summertime, it needs water, 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 water. The Afghan pine's like almost completely opposite. It needs more water in the winter than it does in the summer, which is like completely tricks your mind. Like, what? Yeah, they kind of back off in the summer. They don't like to be as uh, watered then. And that's that's often when they can rot. If they do get a root rot, it's it's going to be in the summertime. It's never in the wintertime, which is also interesting for, for trees like that. And that's that's things to watch out for. They're more susceptible. If they get too much water in the in the summertime, um, they do kind of engorge, and then they come become more susceptible to bores and other things that could be problematic. It's, it's, like, it's completely opposite of everything else we have. Right. I, I don't know another tree shrub bush plant i mean other than your winter vegetables that obviously don't grow in the summertime and need water in the winter i I don't know another tree or shrub that needs more water in the winter than it does in the summer yeah there's really nothing nothing much out there most of them just conserve that and we we back off on water on pretty much everything even our banana trees you know back off on the water in the winter time so as you go into tropicals uh because i I had a a personal question I, i wasn't sure if i was going to ask you on air or not but uh banana mike needs an extreme microclimate but you can have well, success with a banana tree yeah the only microclimate it needs is protection from the winter more so than the summer they actually love the heat uh, as long as they've got a good consistent moisture now with a banana it's it's uh it's vegetative it's not really a tree we'll call it a banana tree but that's just because it seems to be easier to call something taller than me a tree <laughs> than to call it a plant you know, but it, it really is, uh, it's got a much uh, shallower root system, a thinner root system that, that can draw up water quickly, stored inside of itself, but it, it needs a more consistent moisture for those bananas. And so that's on a weekly basis in the in the least right now, you know, almost a daily thing would be okay uh, for, for watering a banana. You can't really overwater a banana in the in the summertime around out here. Uh, but to be conservative with your water resources, you know, we, we recommend my favorite water source for bananas is actually, um, your water coming from your laundry. So oddly enough, even some surfactants, as long as you're not using uh, chlorine bleaches and stuff like that, you know, or, uh, liquid, um, fabric softener, most of the surfactants in typical, you know, tides without a bleach, you know, would be something that actually benefits the soil, even around bananas. And beneficial for them, helps break up the clay, helps it draw up moisture uh, a lot faster, uh, and even attracts worms that we call that living water. And it's it's got a lot more uh, active life in that because a lot of chlorine has been boiled, bubbled out from the washing process and stuff, and it's actually pretty darn good. And then if you're doing laundry once or twice a week, well, then that's right, you know, right, you know, frequency to to make it all work for you. Gary D's pulling out all the classics today. <laughs> little black water for you. We are talking about uh, the Desert Ironwood Tree was our tree of the month. We That's talked right. about uh, landscape watering, which uh, we haven't even got to lawns at all. Uh, may, may take a minute to talk about that for some people that do have them. We're in a transition period if they do both uh, winter rye and a summer Bermuda. We're, we're in that transition period. Do you? And you're agriscaping. 
how how often is a lawn involved in that? Uh, it's it's significant. I mean, there's there's a lot of people that still want that lawn for the dog. I mean, that's usually the one that's wanted for most, or for grandkids, yeah, or their own kids. You know, it's it's easier to raise kids on grass than the rest of the garden. You know, without trampling everything else and making it a problem. So, grass is definitely it's here to stay for a lot of people. And and oddly enough, the Bermuda is probably one of the most drought tolerant ones you can get out there. There's one variety we call it the dinosaur Bermuda. It's more of a seed grown Bermuda, and that stuff that gets everywhere, and you barely have to water that stuff. Bermuda is kind of like the cockroach of the grass. I mean, you, you can't <laughs> hardly kill it. <laughs> no, and that's one of the benefits of it as well. I mean, you know, we had a, a front pasture that didn't get any water through the entire winter. And still green out there, and we still had the cows on it, and still pretty tall. And so, you know, I'm not exactly going to enjoy playing soccer on that field right now, but it it's still life. And now's a great time to be feeding your grasses if you got Bermudas. This is a good time to feed it, especially it's transitioning out of the uh, the the winter rise. Uh, you want to be feeding the Bermuda right now with a good balanced fertilizer, and not just a nitrogen one. I mean, if you just throw nitrogen on it, it'll turn green. But it may not help the roots grow to be able to be established to get through June. Because June is our driest month here in Arizona. It's, so it's a good time. Month, May, month of May, start deepening those roots, get them ready for the drier season coming in the next couple months. Which is one of those things that drive me nuts. They used to have monsoon season. It had to require a certain amount of days over a certain amount of humidity before it was officially the start. Now they just arbitrarily said June 15th. Like said, right in the middle of the driest month yeah. of the year. <laughs> it, it didn't make much sense to me, but I think it had more to do with preparing local municipalities for it so that they could be ready in advance and not get in trouble for not being ready. I think that had more to do with it. It was more of a municipal thing. It's like, be ready, people. You know, <laughs> Be ready. Monsoon, a wind could come. There may not be any rain attached to it, but a wind could come and, and cause you some damage. So Joe's on the line, but before we get to him real quick, uh, Texter wants to know about the ash tree, 25 years old, 22 feet tall. How deep should I be watering and how often? So about as deep as you can test is about three feet, but you want to be getting that about 20 feet deep on that tree. And so um, I would... It, it, looking at whatever you've got, you, you want to get it really deep and overnight watering for a tree that large is going to be an important piece of the puzzle to keep that longevity of a, a nice ash tree like that. Um, testing on how far it gets down. Again, we were talking about before, it's like, see how long it takes for it to get four feet deep and then multiply that by five. And that's going to be your time frame to get it to the depth that you want, but you don't want it to pool. So you never want it to pool in order to get to that. Unless you got flood irrigation, then you should be good, you know, every two weeks or even every month on a flood irrigated property would be sufficient for a tree that size. All right, let's get to Joe who wants to talk about uh, Santa Ana Tiff. Good morning and welcome to the program. Hello, how are you? Very uh, well. Thanks for taking my call. I've got Santa Ana Tiff. It's about 40 years old, and I did a vera cut on it uh, last week. But I've got dichondra that's taking over. How can I get rid of the dichondra in my Santa Ana tip? Well, to be honest, I haven't heard someone say they want to get rid of the dichondra. Usually they'd prefer it. But in the case of, for, for that, if you're wanting to get rid of it, you need to really kind of thatch some of that dichondra out. It's got a different type of root system. It's very complementary to the, to the Santa Ana tiff because it, it actually fixes nitrogen for you. But that's a different story. If you want it out... You're going to need to kind of rake and pick a lot of that out, creating a space for the Santa Ana tiff to grow back in and then to feed it some nitrogen into that space so that it'll grow into that space with that nitrogen. Because right now the uh, the is winning the battle and we need to kind of shift the recipe a little bit. 
And so ripping some of that out, leaving some space, let it grow back in, that'll be about your only way to make that work because it will fill in. It'll it'll fill in. And he said it's about 40 years old. You don't – it's probably the last time a Santa Ana tiff was planted. Probably. <laughs> you, probably. You don't, you don't see that a lot. Don't see it a lot, but it's still around. And usually where that we see the dichondra growing in, it's mainly because it's more of a shaded area. And that might be the case for you, Joe. I don't know. But uh, that, that's, that may be the case and because the Santa Ana doesn't grow as well in that shady space anyway. And so it's just the, the competition is more for sun, uh, and the dichondra prefers the shadier space. We may have just solved a problem we've been dealing with. As our mulberry trees grow and the shade canopy increases, our winter rye underneath it does very well. Yep. But there's still only a certain amount of time through the summer to last, and then the Bermuda never grows in under the shade. Yep. So it's like, correct. all right, are we going to do anything or just let it go to dirt and you know for a couple months? So this. You may have the, the shady dichondra might be our our solution there for our filling. Yep, that could be a solution for you. More solutions coming. And if somebody wanted to learn more about agriscaping or sign up for the multiple online sessions y'all do, or come out and learn hands on, agriscaping.com. Spell that: a g r i s c a p i n g dot com. Agriscaping. Justin Ronner, thanks for spending Saturday morning with us. You're welcome.